This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And many people believe that the uh, Liberal Party is captured by the hard right, especially on issues like climate and energy, Indigenous policy and industrial relations. And the shift away from the political centre is what writer and research fellow Dominic Kelly seeks to understand in his book, Political Troglodytes and Economic Lunatics, The Hard Right in Australia. He zooms in on four single-issue think tanks in particular to try and understand the players and the policies. And these groups might be some you've heard of, the HR Nichols Society, the Benelong Society, the Lavoisier Group and the Samuel Griffith Society. It's a book like another, none other that I've read and um, Dominic's dropped by to have a chat with us about it. Congratulations. Thanks very much. And it is really a world I, I feel like I should know more about but didn't and uh, one group that you know most people I think is probably a household name is the IPA and this seems to me to be where this kind of right-wing think tank world began for Australia. Yeah, I mean, you could you could call the IPA sort of a bedrock institution within this this world. It's been around since the 40s, uh, but it really radicalised in the the 70s and 80s, and uh, that's where the groups that that I've focused on in this book sprang from. And some of the players, some of the people involved with the IPA were then involved with the establishment of these other four groups. Maybe talk about how they're linked and I suppose how they're also quite separate. Yes, so Hugh Morgan is sort of the key uh, business figure here. So he was uh, bankrolling the IPA and the Centre for Independence Studies, which started in the 70s um, throughout this period. Um, And then uh, a young electrical engineer, but... um, very political electrical engineer called Ray Evans uh, got in touch with him in the early 80s and offered his services as a sort of uh, culture warrior within Western Mining where Hugh Morgan was the executive director um, and together they they created this movement where they would create single issue advocacy groups that uh, just as as the name implies focused on a single issue and really push their agenda and try and change the way Australians think about these issues. Was that kind of born out of a, a dissatisfaction with, I guess, initially the rise of, of, of the Labor Party and, and Gough Whitlam and then what, uh, I guess, Malcolm Fraser did not represent when he was in government? Is, is that where they, they started to gain kind of traction for these right-wing figures and, and groups? Definitely. I mean, it it's important to bring in the international perspective as well mm. because there, there's a sort of rejuvenation of, of sort of neoliberal ideas across the world in the 70s with Thatcher in the UK and Reagan in the US. But there was great disappointment with Malcolm Fraser. Fraser was actually, a you know, he loved Ayn Rand. He, he was seen as this sort of uh, hard right figure. But in office, he was in their view, very cautious uh, and w- wasn't prepared to make the big decisions that, that Australia needed. So uh, they they changed the way they did things. They went, rather than trying for internal reform in the Liberal Party, although that was happening too, there was this outside pressure from, from different groups. 
And I guess the other key international development uh, would have been the, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 because some of these groups, such as the IPA initially, their kind of reason for being was to oppose communism when that wasn't such a significant international issue as, as time kind of wore on. They had to find other things to, to worry about. Yeah, that's true. Um, and especially uh, with Quadrant magazine as mm. well, which is an important uh, player in in this whole world, um, and so as communism declines as as an issue to worry about, there are there are these social movements that have been building since the sixties and seventies. So indigenous rights, environmental movement, these are the things that terrify conservatives, and uh, they then have to take them on. And as you say, that they these single-issue advocacy groups were established. And it seems to me that the same fingerprints are on each of the four groups that you zero in on. Maybe tell us which group represents what, uh, yep. because, you know, a lot of people will know them. Some people might not. Yeah. So Ray Evans is the most important figure organisationally in terms of coming up with an idea about how to to create a, a group and what it will try and achieve. So uh, he got together with uh, John Stone, a former Treasury Secretary in the 80s. Uh, also Peter Costello was involved with this one. Um, and they came up with a, a group focused on indigenous, uh, sorry, uh, industrial relations. So that's the HR Nickel Society. Uh, they wanted to completely change the way Australia did industrial relations. So we have a system of arbitration stretching back to the to early federation. Uh, they want to turn it on its head. Uh, you know, just have basically push unions out of the way, uh, and you would have employers and employees just coming up with contracts with each other. And so that was a very radical position when that was Very formed. much so, yeah. I mean, Australia's system is unique, uh, or the, the, the arbitration system. It was seen as very favourable to the union movement. And so uh, in the when you've got Bob Hawke as Prime Minister, former head of the ACTU, um, you know, again, conservatives, they want to they want to change the system, this this pro left system, which that, is interesting because Hawke also opened up the economy in a way that I imagine a lot of them supported. Yeah, it's one of the great sort of uh, paradoxes about that that you know Hawke and Keating were these the seen as the the great left um, sort of bogeymen, but um, they they did a lot of the things that neoliberals wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so we've, we've heard about the HR Nickel Society. What about the Bennelong Society? So that was formed uh, a long process throughout the 1990s uh, and it's focused on Indigenous affairs. Um, so the history there is that from roughly the 60s, uh, assimilation policies gave way to self-determination. Uh, with with the indigenous rights movements that sprang up in that period, uh, these people were completely alarmed by that process, self determination. So, essentially, they wanted to return to assimilation. They tried throughout the nineties through a number of different groups to try and affect this debate, but it wasn't really happening for them. Uh, but finally, after the bringing them home report in ninety seven. Uh, they got a bit of, a, bit of momentum 
and formed the Benelong Society in 2000 and really radicalised the debate in Australia. Um, they, they essentially said, you know, uh, close down remote communities, integrate with mainstream Australia, you know, the classic assimilation. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, it seems and it's outlined in various different ways through through your book, Dominique, is that these extreme positions are also geared to get a lot of attention. That's right, yeah. The, the speeches that Ray Evans wrote for Hugh Morgan uh, were always sprinkled with really inflammatory language to try and um, get newspaper coverage, TV coverage, um, that that's the whole point you get attention by saying things that are really extreme and you also push the the Overton window uh, so you you open up the the debate for for things that were once considered out of the realm of ordinary debate they suddenly become normal and they still do don't they (laughs) that's right yeah I mean throughout the Howard years these things that were once considered you know not acceptable uh, gradually just became ordinary mm. discussion yeah, yeah so okay let's move on to, to the third of these single issue advocacy groups the the boisier group one that has i guess particular resonance with the debates we're still having over energy and climate science what how did they come about so it's it was formed in response to the kyoto discussions so you had giles on earlier this morning i was listening and you know that it, it's still a factor in in what he's talking about with the right uh, in the Liberal Party. Um, so the the first aim of the Lavoisier group was to to stop Australia from signing up to the Kyoto Protocol and they did a very good job of delaying that and delaying that and delaying that until Kevin Rudd was elected in 2007. Uh, once that was no longer a factor, they just continued with the climate denial and delay on any action um, so that was really backed by industry. Um, so they had the Hugh Morgan used all these contacts within industry to get support with the business council, groups like that. Uh, but also it was really influenced by the international um, sort of climate denial movement, especially on blogs and, and other websites. It's a really radical denial movement that they became involved in. Mm. And and the last of these groups, uh, the Samuel Griffith Society, what was it focused on? Because it's sort of these four main areas. So we've got Indigenous policy and self-determination, uh, industrial relations, climate and energy. And what does the Samuel Griffith Society do? Yeah, it's a bit of a funny one because it's a, it's a bit drier and, a bit, and not, not a, it doesn't really grab headlines. Um, so it, it's main aim is to defend the constitution uh, but more specifically the federal uh, compact of the constitution so states rights uh, in so that's sort of the broad intellectual reason for it existing but it became very uh, involved in debates about Mabo uh, the, that judgment which all members of the Samuel Griffith Society would see as a disaster uh, but also the Republic uh, so it was adamantly opposed to to an Australian Republic. Funnily enough, even though it doesn't get the headlines, it's the only one of the four groups that's really uh, got any sort of uh, membership still going. The other three have essentially died off. It's interesting as well because that's the only group of the four that that you 
point out as as really being traditionally conservative in that tradition of kind of Edmund Burke of advocating for uh, incremental change, not kind of um, radically kind of bringing about upheaval of the system or anything like that. In that sense, it is traditionally conservative, yet these three other groups are quite radical in what they're proposing at the time. They do want drastic change or uh, rampant denialism of, of science and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean... I wouldn't call the other three groups conservative if we're being strict about terminology. They're radicals or they're, they're reactionaries. Um, but the the Samuel Griffith Society, you know, has a has a although its its language could at times be radical and reactionary. It's a it's generally about respect for this constitution that that they believe was, you know discussed and debated in very sensible terms and we shouldn't throw it out uh, just because of the whims of the time. Mm. Dominic Kelly's with us. We're talking about his book, Political Troglodytes and Economic Lunatics, The Hard Right in Australia, and it's out through La Trobe University Press. And I, I wonder, I mean, how these groups, these single-issue advocacy groups have been so effective because they really have changed the way that we debate these really... Um, these issues that are still issues today, we haven't been able to resolve them as a, as a community. Yeah, I think that what Ray Evans brought was really a great understanding of how the media works, um, and so the importance of you know making sure that controversial issues were played out in in public. Um, so you know, simple agreement between uh, you know bipartisan agreement doesn't sell papers um so if you can you can radicalize the debate and create these big uh controversial flare-ups um you can really push the as i said push the overton window but really influence the way politicians think as well because if they suddenly see that well maybe we can we can push a bit harder on these issues then then they will start to discuss it in their own uh, party rooms is is this really about i mean I was, when i was reading your book i was struggling to to always understand exactly what the objective was for some of these groups so for some who might for example have issues with the marbo judgment because it might um you know impinge upon mining leases and the ability for some people to extract profits and that kind of thing i can understand on a practical level having you know a vested interest in that and not wanting uh that to come about but for some of these such as the you know neo-assimilationist group as you call them the benelong society what are they really wanting to achieve by this or is it, is it more just kind of getting in there as cultural warriors and redefining what it means to be Australian? Yeah, I mean, part of this is is a lot to do with Ray Evans, his really singular personality in that he he is one of the most uncompromising figures you will ever come across. He, he died uh, about five years ago. Uh, he always thought that you should push harder and harder. There was never any room for, okay, we'll give a bit and they'll give a bit and we'll come up with some sort of agreement. Uh, so his view was that, say, with Indigenous Affairs, that you know that there is simply no other choice but for Indigenous people to to join the general mainstream community and economy. With he he's not interested in their their culture or. Their, their desire to to keep that culture alive. The simple fact is that the the mainstream economy is the only way forward for them, mm. and he will not stop fighting for that. Just heavily ideological. Yeah, yeah, 
Absolutely. And did you get this sense, I mean, how much um, the, the Australian public understands the influence of these groups on, on these types of policy issues? Do you think we know how much influence no, they've No, I mean, they're, they're, they were very small groups. They, you know, they got mentioned in the media around these debates, but um, generally, I mean, that was part of the reason for writing it because it, I'd, I think it's important that this be on the record, that they were part of this shift to the right that we've seen over over decades now um there are many factors they're not the obviously they're not the only one but it was important that that people know what they did when you went out and then started researching this book and and attempting to interview people and um dig up the past in some in some respects did you find people were willing to talk to you or were they initially kind of suspicious about why you wanted to know so much about their organizations and and their reason for being they were initially suspicious of me, um, but uh, I managed to charm them, I think. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like someone like Ray Evans is just so so happy to talk generally about what he did. I mean, he's not... He's, he's not... So say someone like Jared Henderson didn't want to talk to me. He's a very suspicious figure. He, he's always worried about what the, these lefties are up to with their research. Uh, but... But Ray Evans proudly talked about what he'd done. I mean, uh, mm. why would he be ashamed of anything of what he's done? He, that's, that's his life's work. Absolutely proud of it. Yeah. yeah. And were there other people that, that wouldn't speak to you that would have added, I suppose, to this story? Um, well, John Stone didn't really want to speak to me at first, but then we just ended up emailing back and forth and he gave me plenty of material. Um, I think... John Roscombe, who's the head of the IPA, didn't want to talk to me. Um, he could have added a bit more, but there, there's a lot on the record already about what the IPA's done, so that didn't didn't bother me too much. Greg Lindsay, who who was the head of the Centre for Independent Studies, was another one who didn't want to talk to me. Yeah, he might have added a bit more, I think. Yeah, and uh, no women much feature. No, and that's all. something that did stand out and actually my partner was reading this book along with me and he said yeah John Stone's wife was in the book somewhere and it's like <laughs> what is it about these movements and uh, the the real lack of involvement of women in them? Um, it's a good question I mean part of it is probably generational I mean these are these are generally very old men who have always run things and thought that that would continue to be the way things are done that that men run things John Stone, as you said, his wife was very involved with him in the Samuel Griffith Society and he was always uh, at pains to point out that it wasn't just him doing this, that it was very much a partnership. Uh, but that, that's a rare exception. I mean, the rest of the, the groups were pretty much always run by men. Mm. And so this book has come out of a, a PhD and your initial supervisor, and I guess a mentor of sorts, if I can call him that, is Robert Mann. And he was kind of a key player around this time. He was a former editor of the conservative magazine Quadrant before falling out with them over issues, particularly over reconciliation with Australia's Indigenous population and so on. It's interesting to me that Mann is now widely kind of considered a left-leaning public intellectual. And you obviously know him quite well. Do you think that's a sign of, of him having shifted or, or that Australia has become more conservative and therefore he is kind of on the left of the divide? Yeah, it's a bit of both. I mean, 
he he's acknowledged himself that that he shifted on on certain issues but uh, again the cold war is an important factor here mm. so he was he became editor of quadrant on the day that the berlin wall came down quite amazingly um so he was someone who saw that you know the world had changed immediately and that other issues were going to have to come up but there there was an old guard of of anti-communists who were not really interested in uh in changing the way that they thought or opening up quadrant to to new debates they were very much um you know adamant that you know sort of hard right economics and things like that will continue to define what quadrant was mm. and they 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 fought and fought for years and eventually he left um quadrant and became this sort of very much a, a hero of the left um within public debate mm. and um just finally because we're out of time dominic but i mean are we better for these groups better is not the word i mean but you know what do you think we would be without the existence of these groups could we have resolved some of these issues that seem quite intractable even now yeah i mean as i say that there's a lot of other factors involved here so it's it's very hard to to say how much different things would have been without them but i I certainly would argue that we're we're worse for the the influence that they had in coarsening debates especially uh on indigenous affairs i mean the the language the the racism frankly of of the benelong society completely uh coarsened the debate uh, on reconciliation on you know and we're still you know we've, we've got uh, the voice to the uluru statement from the heart and the voice to parliament they're trying to to get some sort of progress on those sort of debates is so difficult because of the way that the liberal party has been radicalized by these sorts of interventions well thank you for your work and thank you for your book um, Dominic Kelly uh, he's the author of Political Troglodytes and Economic Lunatics The Hard Right in Australia and it's a very readable book and I think um, illuminating for those of us that have been political watchers for a really long time um, it's out uh, through La Trobe University Press and available tomorrow Tomorrow, and with announcements last month that the Christmas Island Detention Centre will reopen it's a poignant time to be speaking about the cinematic release of Island of the Hungry Ghosts. The film documents the experiences of trauma counsellor Pauline Lee and her family on Christmas Island at the time when Kevin Rudd was tightening border protections. The film is beautiful and haunting and also quirky as we see how island residents adapt to the red crab migration each year. Uh, To tell us more about it, we've got director of Island of the Hungry Ghosts, Gabrielle Brady with us and migration agent Petra Playfair is also joining us this morning and thank you both for coming in and I think it's worth asking um, straight up, uh, Gabrielle, um, Christmas Island isn't somewhere that you always go. Why is it that you went to um, Christmas Island in the first place? I understand that Pauline Lee was a friend of yours. Yeah, that's right. Um, so Pauline, who features in the film, was living on Christmas Island for around three years. Uh, and we're, we're really close friends. We've been friends for about 10 years. And I was actually based in, in Jakarta at the time. And so she'd said, you know, come across and let's have a holiday. So I really arrived to the space of Christmas Island as as a tourist and you know it, it's it's also a really beautiful place it has this very kind of idyllic and paradise side to it so we spent 
the three weeks uh, really kind of going around as tourists. And Pauline had said to me, you know, in this time, I, I'd really like if we don't speak about my work. Things had been getting really difficult for her as a torture trauma counsellor on the island. So we did that and we went around as tourists. And at the very end, she said to me, you know, before you go, there is something I need to show you. And so we went with machete in hand. Uh, you know, if you're on Christmas Island, you always need to have a machete to cut like your way through the jungle. There, yeah. That's right. And we made our way through this very thick jungle until we reached this lookout point of the detention centre. And it really was one of those moments of shock. I knew intellectually that it was there, that it existed, but it's really being built to not be seen. It was completely hidden on, on the other end of the island and to imagine the people that she was working with that had been in there you know, for up to several years was a really chilling moment and it was a moment that stayed with me and from there Poland and I started discussions and conversations about the possibility of responding to to what was going on through through a film. And the way you responded is really fascinating because this isn't a film that kind of dwells on not so much that the inhumanity or the horror of the experience for people who find themselves in the Christmas Island detention centre, but it's kind of a meditation of, of Pauline's life on that island, which of course interacts with the experiences of, of refugees and asylum seekers, but also takes in these migratory crabs. And, and in that way, it's a really aesthetically interesting film. How did you formulate your, your approach in that way? I mean, from the very beginning, an intention of both mine and Pauline's was if we're going to make a film... I, I don't we won't have any image we've ever seen of Christmas Island before you know I think when you're Australian you have those three same images the images of a boat out at sea or of someone arriving to a jetty being padded down and a lot of that was to do you know due to access of course but we'd been replicating these same images that were about distancing us from what was really happening so the idea for the film was that every layer in this film would spiral us towards a more intimate, you know, coming towards what was actually happening in a more intimate way. So that began the conversation about, you know, for myself in terms of the style of this film and how we would access the structure to take us on a more intimate journey that, that we hadn't seen before. And so we really kind of have this collection of images that are completely unexpected. And I think that's the thing that most people say when they see the film is like, that's not what I expected from the very opening scene. So it was to rupture this idea that we already know everything from that place we don't and so that was really you know the, the big intention from the beginning mm. and you're absolutely right that's how I reacted to the film I was just like oh, I just did not expect this and it's a uh, a wonderful cinematic experience as well although I watched it on a small screen I just can only imagine being immersed in that jungle on a on a very large screen in a in a cinema but um, I mean some of the threads that you explore is the migration of the red crabs which is incredibly famous um, but also uh, local people from with Chinese heritage uh, who it, it seemed to me anyway might have descended from indentured labour um, people that couldn't leave the island for other reasons a long time ago uh, how important was that to the film to look at the sort of spiritual life of, of these residents of Christmas Island I for me it was so important you know and I think when we were looking at the film we wanted to open up you know open up the idea of what we're seeing this isn't just about one you know contextual issue at one point in time how can we feel the story in different ways and this part of the story for me was something that I guess was the haunting the haunting sensation that you when you're on Christmas Island you feel it you feel that sensation of 
there's been a lot of you know death or there's been a lot of suffering and there's that kind of darkness that sits in contrast to the beauty of the place so I was really interested at you know from the very outset this contrast between the beauty of Christmas Island but also the horror of knowing what was happening but that we might not get to see on camera how can we experience it in different ways and this spiritual element through the local story of, of these rituals around the hungry ghosts was a way of resonating that idea without necessarily you know going right in and seeing it. And Petra, you run uh, an international law firm specialising in in visa and and migration issues and I understand part of the funding for this film came from Playfair. What was it that attracted you to this film in particular and I guess what's the role more broadly of, of legal firms in encouraging these sort of artistic portrayals of situations such as this one on Christmas Island? Oh, it's a good question because I must say I was very heartened to see the film because it depicted reality. It depicted our experience. And it's like, it was explained like cognitive dissidence. We see the media, we know about politics, but what we did see in this film is we experienced what people actually felt like when they were working in an environment and living on that island. We've been there, I think Playfair Visa and Migration went there in 2009 when the boats started to arrive and we stopped taking task forces there about 2014 and I'd take large groups of people in there. Our role would be to document somebody who's arrived, an asylum seeker, not a refugee at that point, and you go into a detention centre. So we're into the sterile environment. We're doing our job. The reality of Polin was very much how people had to face their day. So we would document identity. We'd have to document the reason people fled. We'd have to help them prepare and lodge an application, which then determined whether or not they were a refugee. Very intense work, you could imagine, people who don't have any background. And then with that, we would um, leave it in the afternoon and go into this almost jungle-free, extraordinary environment. For me, it was my serenity. I'd go there and swim or do something, you know, because you'd had, you had to get the counter. This film gets that. It counters... It has so many levels that I wanted to support it, but that's the only one reason. I really wanted to support the film because I want to support issues... And there's women who are distributing it, women like you who are directing. You've got women tackling really difficult issues. And it wouldn't have got distribution, I don't think, without people like me supporting it. Well, I've, I looked at it and it was 63% of women filmmakers... No, women filmmakers get less than 63... 63% less distribution than men mm. in Australia yeah, for any film. So you have multiple um, motivations, but I wonder, you know, what you're saying about what you did when you sort of, you know, knocked off work after an intense morning in the afternoon, and we saw Pauline do that in the film where she'd go to a pier or she'd go for a swim, and then you see her kind of raking crabs out of the way of her car, and that contrast was incredible, but it, that if that's life on, on Christmas Island, it's a surre- surreal all round, it sounds like. Um, yeah, incongruous, isn't it? Yeah, incongruous, yeah. 
but that's reality that's human nature that's the force of nature you're dealing with both during the day and then when you come in and and leave you have to stop for those crabs so i really loved everything about that film i think the only thing i disagreed with was in that film there was a um there were children playing with the robber crabs and i used to tell everyone never touch a robber crab it will bite your fingers <laughs> off <laughs> I wouldn't go near one. They look pretty freaky to me. <laughs> I thought I learnt from the film it's quite safe to pat their backs. This is well, what you're, yeah, you're yeah. frowning on. <laughs> I, that's what I was. Depends working. on your parenting style. I think. <laughs> part part of what we see in the film is the real frustrations from Pauline and others who work in kind of the similar area that she does in sort of supporting asylum seekers on Christmas Island is the secrecy and and lack of information that they're able to receive around even where people are if they can't make an appointment or what's happened to them. What was that like for, for Pauline? I guess when you were speaking to her off camera as much as documenting her on camera, how did she kind of grapple with that experience and that immense frustration, I, I would imagine, as a counsellor not being able to assist her clients? I mean, that was one of the biggest challenges um, that we faced also in terms of coming towards the idea of a film was that you know, by the stage we started to talk about making a film, Polin had been there for three years and it had become so bad, you know, at the very beginning when she worked there, it was incredibly difficult, um, the conditions that people were, were facing in terms of being detained and separated from family, but they were leaving, you know, they were leaving with a visa to Australia. There was that point every Tuesday, I think it was, where people would leave with visa in hand, ready to start their lives in Australia. And by the end of those three years of, of Poland's time, um, nobody was leaving. So by the time we came to the idea of making a film, things had tightened so incredibly around her that one huge challenge we were facing was how do we, you know, as Pauline was saying, how do I express what I'm going through when for three years I've been told that I can't say a word, you know, and my hands have been tired and I'm, you know, I think for her it was the, the, the challenge for us in making the film was to find the ways to express what was going on for her because it was so deep and so dark and really the only people she could trust to talk to were, were her family um, and a couple of her colleagues. You know, emails were being monitored. Um, things were were really tight at that time. So, you know, I think the film was also partly a, a, a kind of... Um, a, like a platform for her to go through the process of wording and expressing what was happening for her because it was really the the big conflict that she faced at the time was do I stay and not be able to help these people in a way you know ethically that feels okay for me or do I leave and leave these people behind and that was a, a, a really big question that she faced over those over those years mm. and and could you see that weighing on her as a friend of course and you know and we I think this was a huge challenge as well beginning the filming was we were going into very deep emotional work and of course as a friend my first reaction was to to console and comfort and in fact one of the first scenes that we went out to to film became quite a, an emotional moment and my first reaction was just to go out there as a friend uh, so we had to have a, con a constant conversation as to how we would do this as director and you know non-actor or participant um, 
you know, and even have the friendship there, but also find a way to to be able to make this film where we're in different dynamics with each other. So it's a constant conversation that I think we only could have done with such a, a strong friendship. Um, but of course, it was you know hard to see somebody that you care about so much in such a position that doesn't have an easy answer, you know, or the only answer that sh- that that she could offer people was you need to get out of indefinite detention. That was the one thing she couldn't provide. Mm. We're speaking with director Gabrielle Bradiella about her film Island of the Hungry Ghosts and also in the studio is uh, the head of Playfair, an international uh, law firm specialising in visa and migration issues and they assisted in the film getting off the ground and and I guess as someone who's worked uh, intimately with Asylum Seekers Petra and seen the ways in which different policies and and, um, visa categories affect the way in which people are able to, to seek asylum or not. I mean, we've seen temporary protection visas kind of come and go and come back again and that sort of thing. In what ways do these impact on the ability for people to begin a new life or or have hope for the future? Profoundly. Absolutely profoundly. The um, issue for people that Gabrielle depicts so well in this film is this sense of hopelessness that develops when there isn't a solution. It's not the solution itself, it's the fact that people are left almost in the twilight zone and the film can do that so beautifully because of the sense of the wildness of nature and that issue of people and their position in a detention centre. You know, they say it's not... If it's, in a, if it's a prison sentence, you know when you're getting out. But if you don't know, you don't even... Your counsellor doesn't even know what's happened to you. It filters all the way through. It's this sense of this black hole that can create problems with mental health that makes settlement very difficult when you do come out. More difficult the longer you're in. So I always say, good policy matters. And when you have poor policy, not only does it cost enormously the Australian taxpayer at a practical level, it's just not good policy at a humane level. And it could be. I mean, we could do so much better. We have. In fact, when we went there in 2009, I think it was a 90-day turnaround. That's exactly what you said when Pauline probably went. And to watch it slow down to a kind of a quagmire as if it wasn't... because it wasn't happening. It's could. Processing, due process, all the legal processes could be done relatively quickly. And we saw um, depicted in the film uh, the narrative therapy sessions that Pauline's engaged with. And I understand um, they, they weren't filmed on Christmas Island. I'm quite interested in how that came about because they, I mean, I was just drawn in. I was heartbroken and sort of crying at, in, during, you know, watching some of those sessions but tell us how that how you filmed that part of the film yeah sure that's a great question um i mean i think it's interesting when people like oh so it was scripted no it wasn't scripted and i think you can you know feel that in the film as well so originally uh when we came to the idea of of starting to talk to some of poland's clients we were in her therapy room uh waiting and we would meet people and gauge interest you know and we were very surprised by how many people actually did want to take part in a film by that stage I think there was a huge sense of desperation uh, of or of wanting another platform to be able to be heard you know people had were feeling very forgotten 
And so we started a process of filming, um, but it became apparent really quickly that those people, of course, were being taken by Serco guards back into the detention facility where their emails were being monitored, where they were facing indefinite detention. And they had no way of knowing when they were leaving or where they would be transferred to, or you know, the chances of us losing contact with them were really high. So how could I, as a filmmaker, go take that material and then use that as part of the film when I actually don't know if there's a real sense of permission two years down the track when we go to edit the film? So, yeah, it became really apparent to me and Poe quickly that we wouldn't be able to use that material because we didn't have a real sense of permission. Um, So we came up with the idea that we could perhaps film the therapy sessions with people that had just arrived from Christmas Island to the mainland of Australia within a week uh, of arriving clients of Polins um, and film it in retrospect a week after they had arrived. And I say it was an experiment because we had no idea, you know, I think for Polin, you know, it was very important that it was therapy number one, filming number two. So we were there as fly on the wall witnesses to a therapy session there was no discussion beforehand or you know I wasn't speaking to people or briefing them this was really what was happening in in that therapy space and I just didn't know if things from the detention center would come up but of course of course they did and every session that we filmed actually was centered around experiences from the detention center and the time on Christmas Island so it meant that we could film these experiences in a way that we could keep in touch with people and you know and and gain a real sense of permission so by the time we came to the edit uh, of course I was still in discussion with people and people were watching their parts and giving feedback and ensuring that this was going to be okay for them to take part Um, you know and a lot of discussion with legal teams and 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 their lawyers um, and things like that so it was really the only way that we could take an ethics of care to be able to to film these sessions. Mm, and, and it's kind of accidentally timely that we're talking about Christmas Island and, and this film, given that last month we heard that the centre will reopen as, as part of the uh, medical evacuations bill that was passed by Labor and, and the cross bench. Uh, have you spoken to Perlin about how she feels about the centre reopening and, and what that might mean for people on the island? Um, I mean, I think when it officially closed uh, this time some months ago, um, or more than some months ago, I think it was around six months ago, uh, you know, I had a discussion with Poland at that time and I think, um, you know, really what we felt or particularly what she felt was, okay, first of all, this doesn't really mean anything until offshore detention facilities are closed and there's been some kind of reckoning, you know, so to speak. There's been a discussion and a reflection of what what we've done. Um, But also I think there was some scepticism that it had really closed. And so with the reopening, again, I think it's it's scary that it's not shocking. It's, um, It's not a surprise, but it should be. And I think it's this kind of thinking that... Um, you know, months out from an election, a knee-jerk reaction, it's sad and it's, um, you know, of course it makes us really angry that this has happened, but it also wasn't a huge shock. And, I mean, not to speak on behalf of Poland, but I think that's the sentiment kind of the whole team has has been feeling. And Petra, if... if um if asylum seekers and refugees are, are taken to that centre, I mean, are you likely to be visiting again Christmas Island or is that Actually, not you don't know? Or? I have no idea. And our interest in the film preceded 
this sort of announcement. It was about Pauline and just trying, you know, an ordinary person trying to do a job in a different circumstance. In fact, I mean, I'm not political. Let's be rational. What's happening? We know um, the people who are um, in offshore detention um, have primarily all been processed, primarily. Let's say, let's assume that. It's in the public domain. It's not that many people. Um, we know that they've, they've they come to Australia, it's for medical reasons. We know we've got a zero boats policy, so there's not more people coming. And if those people need medical attention, what I remember is that the f hospital facilities in these places, in remote locations, typically don't have the kind of facilities to get that specialist care. I think that's already been stated by people on Christmas Island publicly. It's in the newspaper articles. So those people who come from offshore, they'd be going somewhere near where their medical specialists are, which will be probably community detention near the right hospitals and the right services. So what's Christmas Island left for? We can't answer That's that. a very good question. <laughs> and hopefully it's not to have people who languish, you know, with no, no process, no decision. Don't know. And uh, yesterday, was it yesterday that the film screamed at Acme? Uh, I hear it went very well. And where, where can people see it if they want to um, head along and, and catch this film, Gabrielle? Yeah, so we're just launching the nationwide uh, cinema release of the film now. As you said, it premiered uh, yesterday at Acme in Melbourne. But it'll be showing around uh, many states, in fact, um, almost all of the states. So you can go to the website, islandofthehungryghost.com, and check out uh, all the screening dates. I'll also be there for quite a few of the Q&As um, as well. So, uh, yeah, if you are interested, please head online, read a bit more about it and um, check out the screening dates. Thank you both for coming in. Really appreciate it. All the best with the film. And um, and uh, thanks, Petra, and everyone else who helped fund it. It's a wonderful film and very much worth seeing. It's called Island of the Hungry Ghosts. Um, check it out online for where you can catch it near you. And we've been speaking with director Gabrielle Brady and Playfair director Petra Playfair. And... Uh, uh, yeah, all the best. Thank you. <coughs> this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.